Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Great Jones, a startup that makes cookware that I use and love at home. Upgrading your kitchen tools is one of the best things you can do to improve your cooking. And it's also great to give Great Jones cookware as a gift this holiday season. You can even get Great Jones Designs engraved, a very special present. Great Jones products start at $45 and include a ceramic nonstick skillet, a big stainless steel stock pot, and a colorful Dutch oven that looks as good as it works. When's the last time you replaced your pots and pans? It's important. Go to greatjones.com and use the code DAVE, D-A-V-E, at checkout for 15% off. If you care about how your food tastes, you should care about your cookware. It's a great bargain. It's a great value for an amazing set of cookware. Very affordable and especially for 15% off. What a good discount. Again, greatjones.com, code DAVE for 15% off. Buy it for yourself, buy it for your friends. Great holiday gift. Today's show is also brought to you by Buckley. We all know that good food comes from good ingredients, and the same applies to pet food. And Buckley's dog food is all about quality ingredients. Buckley's recipes are preferred five to one because they don't have any rendered meat meals, byproducts, or fillers, just fresh meat and whole ingredients. My dog, Sevy, loves Buckley's, and I know why now. There's no fillers, and that's good for my dog because I love when my dog is healthy and happy because he's eating well. Go to buckleypet.com slash Chang and use the code Chang for 20% off your first order. That's again, buckleypet.com slash Chang, one word, and use the code Chang for 20% off your first order. And now the Dave Chang Show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. This week, we have an amazing guest, the fabulous Madore Joffrey. She's an actress and a cookbook author and probably the person most responsible for introducing the English-speaking world to real Indian cuisine, the food of India, not the bastardized, Americanized version that most people in America seem to know about or in the English-speaking world. Uh, She's led an extraordinary, varied life. She has earned all of her strong opinions, and I've been wanting to sit down with her for a long time, have looked up to her for many, many years. So I was honored to get to speak to her. And I have been trying to practice her name, and for whatever reason, I apologize. If I have mispronounced Madur Joffrey's name, please don't get mad. I've really tried to get it right. And uh, Priya Krishna, I'm sorry if I screwed it up. Um, wanted to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. I know it can be a meaningless holiday and can be full of family things, both good and bad. But uh, hopefully you guys get to enjoy it if you do get a day off. Not everyone in the culinary world gets this day off, but most of everyone else does. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it to Ma and Chang's home this year because our son seems to have a little bit of a fever, and this is a new experience for me. Uh, So all the parents out there, I understand that your lives are never the same because you have to take care of someone else, and it's not your schedule anymore. So Mom Chang, probably not making it to 
have your amazing food. And if you haven't had Korean American Thanksgiving or any kind of Thanksgiving that isn't the traditional American Thanksgiving, they're out there. And I know just from my life, my mom's cooking is unbelievable. And and I know other Korean Americans have like this best of both worlds. You have Korean celebratory meals like kalbijim and chapche and kimchi next to turkey and gravy. And I know that's the same for anyone that's Filipino American or Japanese American or Chinese American or Mexican American or Indian American. You get this mixture of everything and not everyone serves turkey. You don't have to love turkey. I don't, but uh, it's a great day of eating and uh, hanging out and hopefully everyone gets along with their relatives. But uh, just wanted to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving and uh, let you get on with this podcast with the great Madur Joffrey. I know that so much of your work and when people ask you about it is all about the past, yeah. about your career in, as an actress and then prolific cookbook author and talking about the beauty of Indian food. And I really want to give you the opportunity to talk about all the things moving forward. My that, rap video we can talk about. That's a little comment. Yeah. Well, I mean, we you helped us out on Ugly Delicious. Yes. Uh, thank you for that. And well, I want to make sure that we don't cover too much of that because it was a very eye-opening experience for me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be very honest with people. I don't know that much about Indian food because America doesn't have a connection with India. I grew up in Northern Virginia, like basically the Mid-Atlantic South. I never had Indian food. Right. Like ever. Um, yeah. And if you had, it would not be good or authentic, probably. I'd never had it till I came to New York. Mm-hmm. And it was the Murray Hill, Curry Hill stuff. Which, That's terrible. <clears throat> right. And it caused me to wonder, oh, this is the introduction that most people have to Korean food or to any Asian food. So when I saw it through that prism, my naivete was under, I could understand that, but yeah. I needed to see that as like, oh, then I can see how people could have a misrepresentation of food that I care about. Yeah. That I can't get angry if someone doesn't know. There mm-hmm. was no way for them to know. Right, right. So it's a process. And it it's is. a process that you've been deeply entrenched in right. for many years. Right. And, and you see the Indians who came initially, uh, who started restaurants, jump ship. So they were sailors. They weren't necessarily cooks. And even if they cooked, they didn't cook what they were cooking at home. They cooked for what they thought people would want. And very often they were Bengali chefs. So now India is a huge country, as you know. It's the size of Europe. And inside it are different parts, like different countries of Europe. There's like a Spain or a Sweden. The food is very different where you come from. So if you come from Bengal in India or Kerala in India, the food is totally different. So these were very often Bengali cooks who jumped ship, but they didn't make Bengali food because it was all a lot of fish and people wouldn't want that. So they made somebody else's food. They made Northern Indian food and they couldn't make that. So they made a general facsimile, as it were, of Indian food. So they weren't even making their own wonderful food. So there we are. That's what people got introduced to, and and they thought it was cheap. And 
Ah, tasty enough. I was still very honest. I know very little about most foods in the world. I don't know why. It's an impossibility to know everything about everything. You just can't. I can't know everything about India. And It's so huge. And that's the thing that I don't think you can become an expert scholar in Indian food because I think it's an impossibility, but be, because it's so dense and the languages are different and the regions are so diverse, that kind of impossibility, right? The literally physical limitations of becoming an expert is so foreign from someone from a Western perspective. However, however, as in my case, if you travel enough with an open mind, you pick up. I've been writing for Gourmet um, since my 20s, 30s. And I made them send me, they, they were quite happy to send me to all kinds of places in Asia, and uh, which was fine. I didn't know them. I could write about them. They let me write about the Philippines. I'd never been to the Philippines. They wouldn't let me write about Italy. That's... Yeah, that's, that's another thing. And I'd been to Italy 40 times, you know, but I, I was, Asia, you go, you... It doesn't matter if you know nothing about a country, you can write about it. So I made myself go to countries and learn their food, really try and understand their food. So I feel I've traveled around much of the world learning, absorbing, comparing, contrasting, and seeing actually the pattern of how foods traveled and how tastes are formed. You know, if you go along the the the, the whole road, the the road through the center of Mongolia and that leads to Europe and comes down to India, the Silk Road, the old Silk Road. I'm sure if you dug up there, you'd find how it all happened, how it all mingled and how it all mixed. And I'm dying to go there and dig and find out. But I have done a lot of traveling and I do see the connections. And I, that's one of the reasons why. What, what is the central thesis to this connection? That you've learned. Well, well, one of them is, is that wheat was discovered in Mesopotamia. And it could not have gone to either Rome or to China to make wheat noodles until it was taken there. So the wheat noodle part came, went to everyone from the Middle East. That is, so everyone who has dumplings and Noodles of various kinds, you see them. The Fertile Crescent literally was the bread basket for the world. Right. So when you see the, the names of the dumplings change as they travel from the Middle East towards China, you know from the name, the mumu and all that, and, and uh, anthropologists have actually done the, the, this kind of study of names and how they changed. Uh, they, it is so obvious that the inventor is not either Italy nor China. It's, it's the Middle East. And you find semolina, hmm. you know, the handmade uh, couscous, for example, right. uh, is started in, in Mesopotamia. That's how they made the first noodle. And then it went, you see it in Morocco, you see it actually in northern Pakistan. They make their own uh, couscous-like thing. And everybody does it. It's a simple method and a very basic method, but you can trace it because of where things originated. This is wonderful talking to you because I, I rarely have these conversations 
maybe with I have this with like someone like Dave Arnold who studies this stuff too, but to hear it from your perspective, it's awesome, right? And I don't know, you know, we've done probably what 80 plus podcast episodes. That's probably if you're going to listen to this and you're, if you're in the food world, that's the most significant thing you could learn. Yeah. Is what you just said. Is essentially whatever you think you thought you knew or you think your culture owned is false. Yeah. It didn't yeah. come from you. Yeah. So you should approach everything with an open mind. Right. And research. I mean, just see where things originated. That'll tell you something. So the reason I'm bringing this up is, again, I'm always curious about the pollination of oh, food. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. From Mongolia to North Africa. Me too. It's uh, amazing. Yes, it is amazing. And um, when we were in India, and I think it was Tamil, the, the language, I would continue to hear words and phrases. And I was like, that's not Korean and that's not Japanese. Both languages I'm bad at, even though I'm born Korean. Mm-hmm. And I was like, there's no way that's possible. Like you're, the, 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 the words were almost the same, certain phrases. And I looked into it and there was Sanskrit that went all the way. It's a possibility, right? Right. As it, as it traveled with Buddhism all the way to Korea and Japan. That, Absolutely. And it I was certainly like, oh, I know my. it went to Vietnam. Right. Yes, yes. So why wouldn't certain parts of the dialect? Yes. And I thought that was, if that can happen with, like, literally the thing that everyone needs besides food. Right. And food certainly was influenced by, like, I. it was then I really understood more than just reading about it in history. The, like the, the 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 significance of Indian culture in the world. Yeah. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's crazy. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a thing about my name. So my name is Madhur, right? So the as you go across Europe, you'll find similar na- like mead and uh, meal. The the D changed to an L as it traveled west. And I was cooking in a place called Ballymaloo in Ireland. Mm. And Maloo, same word. Yeah. It's the D changing into an L and it means honey. So <laughs> That's so amazing. I, it's the, and that's the Indo-European language traveling west. So even those languages will give you clues uh, about things and names. So that was... Um... That's the connection, the main connection you see. Yeah. How? Why is that important? Because I think some people will look at this as, well, this is just a useless history lesson. Why is it important for us to know this? Well, you can eat and live and die without knowing it. You don't have to know it. But the food suddenly becomes so enriched as you put a mouthful in your mouth when you know that, oh gosh, this originated, the chicken originated in India. Or the red pepper that you're eating in Thai food came from the Western world and traveled. And people now think it came from Asia, but it didn't. They are are foreigners to it. And then if you go to a place like uh, Trinidad, and they they call something uh, uh, coriander, cilantro, uh, they call it uh, 
the uh, cilantro of the woods or the, the green of the woods, but it is actually what we now, they call culantro, uh, the cilantro of the woods, because it has a similar taste mm. and smell as cilantro. So you see why things are called the way they are called and how, if you don't know how people traveled, were put in, when slavery, I'm talking very fast, when slavery was abolished, they needed people to run all these fields in, in Trinidad, Tobago, all these places in the Caribbean and uh, Guyana and all these places. So they they got rid of their slaves. They had to by law. So they got indentured labor, which they got captured. They just captured people in India and brought them as indentured labor. And what do these people eat now? And I talked to them at length. And their food is a memory of their horrific past and the rations they were allowed to have. They were never given whole wheat flour, so they never made whole wheat breads like they do in India. It was always white flour made mm. into some kind of bread. So you begin to understand why their diet is what it is, given the rations that the overseers gave them as indentured labor. So that's why history is important. You know what you're eating, what you're eating, either because it grew there, because politics made you eat those things, or your landlords made you eat those things. So it comes some, sometimes to you for a reason. You've been fighting this fight before anyone else, really. Recently on this podcast, and it got picked up again, and I knew it was going to be inflammatory, I said the ethnic food aisle is bullshit. Yeah. It is. And, you know, it's funny, around the world, around the country, people in L.A. was like, no, it's great, because in L.A., they don't see it as separate because a lot of the Asian ingredients are already all over the place. Right. But growing up, I was always realizing that Asian food items or Latino American food items will never be popular because it's its own thing. Listen, there's a lot more to explore in this. But knowing full well that people were going to see this as a polarizing thing and that I'm being soft and I'm being too liberal, I knew these conversations were going to happen. But mm -hmm. I, what I wanted was the conversation to happen. Right. The people to say, well, that's not even an issue. Mm -hmm. Why do people assume that food is so not important in how we represent our lives and our culture and the meaning of it? Because- I, I know you know, but how do we better explain to people that I'll this may you, seem like nothing, but it's very significant? There's a reason. I remember being in the company of a whole lot of very big-name actors who were mostly English. This was in England. And food was not important to them at all. And why? Because they probably have no palate. Give them a bowl of straw and they'll eat it and it, they just need to feed the stomach, get it full. They have no taste. They can't taste it. So, A, to really enjoy every aspect of food, including its history, which becomes another taste almost mm -hmm. as you eat it, you have to have a palate to begin with. And as with all our senses, my husband's a musician. He's born with a wonderful ear. He can hear. We went for a test, and he kept hearing long before I stopped hearing. And I kept seeing, because I have a good visual sense, long before he 
stuff because what they had done was they embedded numbers into dots and the dots got paler and paler and paler and paler. And I could see till the very end, two, three embedded in that and he couldn't. And the palate is the same. Some people can't taste very well. So give them garbage. They'll eat it. They'll be happy. It'll fill their stomachs and they don't care. So people themselves are not the same. And some people want more and some people don't care. So we need to know that, that they're not not enjoying it because they're really distinguishing between this and that, but they aren't necessarily doing that. Do you feel that because people believe it's so insignificant, that it's such a common thing like breathing, why make a big deal out of food and maybe the racial and awful implications of food? Like it just keep that separate. So I find that most people seem to believe that it's a relatively insignificant thing. It is calories, whether they have good palate or not. Do you agree that because people don't think about it and it is a reflection of who you are in some way, that when you see someone saying like, like uh, I don't eat that because it's too spicy and I'm going to get a headache from eating that or I'm going to get diarrhea if I eat that, that they're not trying to be racist. They're not trying to be biased, but because they're not thinking about it, it's not an active cognition mm-hmm. that it actually tells you so much more about the person, about what they feel about things that are out of their comfort zone. And that's why I feel food is so much more important than people realize. It is the underlying values oftentimes of people, not always accurate, but right, I'd right. love your thoughts on that. Um I think it also depends on how adventurous you are. Some people are not. They like the same thing again and again. Mondays they want this, Tuesdays they want that. And they they like their routine and they're happy with the routine and they don't want anything shifting or changing. So it could be dozens of reasons. It could be they have no palate. It could be that their stomach really does get upset because they're not used to eating mm-hmm. this kind of food. Uh, and it could be that they just uh, have been brought up in such a closed way that they're not open to anything. So it could be psychological, it could be physical, and it could be, you know, it could be many things. I wouldn't know the answer depending on if I sat across the person. Right. I might be able to tell. But do you feel that this is a fight worth fighting? Because I've now come to the conclusion and this is not something that is permanent, but my per- current belief is that this is not an answer that you're going to find out in your lifetime, that change is going to happen over hundreds of years, should there be a world in a hundred years or so, that that yeah. we, you've done your part and what you've done is have influenced me to do whatever I can do, but we so much want to see it come to fruition in the best way possible, but I don't well, think that's possible. What do you want? What is your idea here? I want people to be more open to things that are different than what they're normally, you know, their norm, their comfort zone. Look at our society today. I know. Look at politics today. I know. It's more closing down than opening up. And I think food truly is at least one way that could open up or at least prop that door open. I think there'll always be people that are open for a variety of reasons, 
and always be people who are close. I mean, why are people liberal and why are people conservative? I have no idea, but I know that in my own family, uh, there were conservatives in my family and and liberals. I'm talking about a huge family, the mm-hmm. joint family, the you know, hundreds of us. And it always surprised me that somebody so a cousin could be a conservative, but I was a liberal. It didn't occur to me that this was even possible, but it was possible. And so I think we are, there's something in us that must be born, screwed up tight mm. <laughs> or something, and some born more open and accepting and uh I think that difference comes, must come at birth. I don't understand because we grew up in exactly the same environment, my cousins and I. Then how do you, do you still remain hopeful? I don't know what hope in this area would mean because I don't know whoever it is up there controlling this whole thing. I don't know what the patterns are that he's setting out or she's setting out or they are setting out. But I know that some people, we we get into groups, we find people like ourselves, like you and me. I mean, we could always talk because we are open. We are, we receive, we are willing to receive, we're willing to learn, we're willing to see other people's points of view. But there are people who just aren't. So what makes them that way? I don't know. Don't know the answer. And I'm I'm asking this in my head and asking you when it comes, this goes back to like the manifestation of this conversation is literally when will a place like America be open to Indian food? And if that happens, what does that mean? And how does that actually happen? Like what? I tell you how it happens. It happens like, and that's why I'm a great supporter of Priya and her book, because I think that's the direction it'll go in. It'll become Indian-ish. It will become uh, a kind of mixed food that has Mexican elements, just what's happening in LA. It'll have all these other elements, and it'll be therefore easier mentally, physically to grasp. Oh, you can roll it up like a tortilla. Oh, it's similar to this. Oh, it's like a pizza. Um, That Americans somehow go to more easily than presenting them with the real thing. However, I feel that the real thing is heaven. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely amazing and it's so varied across India. So I will keep plugging what I think is the best of India. And I think people like Priya, there are others like her in this newer world who have found that her generation needs something else. And she's catering to her generation. And uh, good luck to her, because that's where I think it's going. Do you think you need to know Indian food to truly appreciate? Like, do you need to know Indian history to truly appreciate Indian food? No, no. Once you go to India and eat in the various places and eat in homes, you'll be converted in a trice. And I still don't have the answer having, again, been to India for my first time the past year filming. Everyone's like, 
eat, yes, you got good street food. Yes, you'll have some restaurants that are good. You know, if anyone goes to restaurants, they tend to be the the, the Chinese Indian restaurants that are delicious and a whole subgenre of Chinese food that most people don't really appreciate. Right. Um, Did you go into homes? We went into a couple. Why is Indian food so much better in homes? Because they're not trying to make it special. So when you make it special in India, which is a poor country, they add more butter or ghee, they add more cream, they, they make it richer and ghee is floating on the top, and they do extra things to it to make it special. Otherwise, why would you come to their restaurant? Why would an Indian go to an Indian restaurant if they aren't doing special things? But at home, you don't. You cook like you should cook. It's just simply sautéed or roasted or, or grilled or whatever they're doing to it, or put in a tandoor. It's simple. It's delicious and it's authentic to homes. And that is the great food of India. So delicious. But the, there's so many different things to eat. And right. I, I was like, man, I, I don't even know anything anymore because... Just get to know one or two things. That's all. <laughs> That's, you don't need more than that. You think, are there restaurants? Then why are the restaurants in Britain like considered good? Why can't Not America... Not all of them. Not but, all of but them. But there are some. There are some. There are some who are really trying, genuinely trying to do uh, either regional Indian food or authentic Indian food in some other way. They are. Do you think that an average American, I don't want to say average, but let's just say someone that doesn't know Indian food, they're going to not look at dal as something that is like appealing? I've heard say pe- people say awful things about dal. <laughs> what, what, what have people said to you about like dal? Like dal again, dal again, everywhere you go is dal. First of all, what's dal for people that don't okay. know? So dal is... The word dalna is to split. So generally, a dal is a split bean of some kind. However, sometimes we say we're going to a dal shop. It, it can have whole beans. It can have split beans. It can have split and hulled beans. It can have unhulled beans. It's a combi- it can have bean flowers. It has all these things. So it, it generally comes under the category of dal. So it's beans and legumes in various, sold in various ways, either hulled and split or skin off, skin on, different ways. But they're a family of beans and legumes. And cooked with what? Ah, (laughs) you can cook a different dal every single day, plus the dal flowers, like chickpea flour, we use for hundreds of other kinds of dishes. You can make pancakes out of it, and uh, you can make fritters out of it. You can make all kinds of things out of chickpea flour, which is a very nourishing flour. So very often you'll take chickpea flour and put a little water and a little yogurt. So now you're making it nutritionally very rich by adding these things. And then you will use that as a batter to make a hundred different things. And all is dal. But Dal's not just eaten with rice. It's eaten with a variety of different things. It depends things. on what you do with it. Right. Yeah, you can make little cakes out of it. You can make pancakes out of it. You can, uh, you know, it depends on what you do out of it. So that's what I've been meditating on. I mean, we've, we've wrapped up our, our episode on, on the food of India, which is basically just the briefest of topics for us to, like, it's just too, you could do 
10 years of a TV show never really make a dent. But I kept on thinking, right? For me, it's a bowl of kimchi and rice, right? That's my comfort food. And I'm, I've, I, I just now admit it. I was like, yeah, that's what I want to eat. If there's nothing and what I want to feel like Same home. for me. I say, my, well, say, what's your last meal? You know, you, how people keep asking you that. Basmati rice, dal, little bit of pickles. Or Delicious. yogurt. I'm happy. And I can, that that is, I think, as representative of what that is, right? Like, and if I was going to think, when I talk to my friends that are from India, they'll always say, like, I just want to eat dal. Yeah. Like, that is like a hamburger for people. That is like fried chicken. It's, it's soul food. It's soul food. Hmm. But in some ways, dal and Indian food is the pinnacle of the idea of ugly delicious, right? It's yeah. It's so intensely delicious and nourishing to a large group of people, but yeah. completely foreign to someone else. And if you gave dal to an average person in America, I think they would be like, what's so special about yeah. this? Yeah. And in order for Indian food to get a better representation, I think one of the things that I would like to do or try to figure out people that can do that is to get dal to a like a level of acceptance where people are like this, this is like what I want well, to eat. They, people like Kali dal, for example. That's one dal from the Punjab. And it's a mixture of two, two dals, uh, one small, one large red kidney bean, and a small Indian origin dal. Both whole with their skins. They take long to cook. And you cook them together with a lot of butter and ghee and cream. And then you have ginger and garlic in it and browned onions on the top. I made that uh, the other day for, with Priya. Priya was making one dal. I was making another dal for the New York Times. And uh, that dal is a dal that people like because it's something, it's not just plain old dal. It's an enriched dal, but I wouldn't eat that every day. But it is a delicious dal. So I know what you should do is have a whole lot of us cook dal in 20, 30 different ways. Because then you would see the pancake, you would see the <laughs> fritter, you would see all kinds of things that are made with the beans and their flour that are so delicious, and that's why we can't live without them. So making beans popular, that's got to be a T-shirt. <laughs> it could be. I know somebody in India was trying to make, they said, if you could make pasta out of beans, that would be good. But it didn't quite work out. Well, they have that now. They have the chickpea yeah. pasta and whatever. Yeah. I haven't even tried that yet. But I was really, I, I've been thinking about this more and more. And it was like, um, when I think about the American South, and a lot of that food comes from Africa, and then it goes back to this whole idea where food was coming from to yeah, begin with. right. But like one of my favorite things in the world to eat is like southern lima beans, like a lima bean suit, or more specifically red beans and rice. Right. I love that. And That's a Mexican version. So good. It's and, so good. And like for even Popeyes. Popeyes <laughs> yeah. to me, the best. And you take chopped onions and put it so on the top. <laughs> and it's it already exists. I know. But if I say, tell people it's a bowl of dal, people are like, well, I don't know about that. Yeah. But if I say it's Popeye's red beans and rice, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, like, yeah, I can get down with this. Yeah. How do you change that? I don't know. I don't know. Just by 
inviting people to your home and making them eat it, and this is so good. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart, and growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. Codable co-founder Gretchen Hebner experienced how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a new game artist to grow with her education tech company. But then she switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. And you can too by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. And by using ZipRecruiter's screening questions to filter candidates, Gretchen found it easier to focus on the best ones, then find the right one. In fact, after posting her job on ZipRecruiter, Gretchen said she was honestly surprised she found qualified applicants so quickly and hired a new game artist in less than two weeks. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. Today's show is also brought to you by Allbirds. Everyone loves a gift that they can feel good in and good about. And Allbirds are stylish, comfortable, and sustainable, so you can't go wrong. Allbirds Streamline Design is versatile, so you know you'll look great anytime you lace them up. They come in a wide range of colors inspired by nature and a variety of silhouettes to keep you looking your best in whatever situation you find yourself this holiday season. Ladies, the tree breezers are your new go-to flats. They'll have you feeling like the bell of the ball at any holiday party. Meanwhile, the wool runners, which are made from ZQ-certified merino wool, will help you stay warm while the Mizzle Collection, complete with Puddle Guard, will help you stay prepared through winter's unpredictable weather. I love my Allbirds because they feel so soft. They're like walking on clouds. I've received them as a gift last year for Christmas, and this year I'm giving to everyone I know. Allbirds are the perfect gift to make the holidays a little bit more comfortable for everyone on your list. Give the gift of comfort this holiday season or get a pair for yourself at allbirds.com. Today's show is also brought to you by East Fork. East Fork makes beautiful, durable plates, bowls, mugs, and more in Asheville, North Carolina using regional stoneware clays. Founded in 2009 by Alex and Connie Matisse in a dirt-floored mountain workshop, they've got deep roots in Southern craft traditions. It's a values-driven business committed to bringing solid, sustainable, middle-class jobs to their Southern community by reimagining and dignifying the manufacturing industry. Their work comes in a gorgeous array of colors, from a palette of reliable neutrals to an ever-rotating cast of bright, happy, or statement seasonal glazes. They work with chefs and restaurant owners to make their vessels look great, stacked up tall in the past, and they will elevate the most humble of dishes and hold up well in commercial dishwashers. Whether you're microwaving leftover takeout on a Tuesday or plating an 18-course tasting menu, East Fork's pots play a confident but supporting role that make any meal feel comfortable and just right at home. East Fork looks so good. My wife is a ceramicist. She's really, really good. And she loves the products that the team at East Fork make. They not only look great, they are amazing to eat out of and to serve out of. We use them at home and I can totally understand why they're so popular in restaurants. 
Go to eastfork.com and use code Chang, C-H-A-N-G, for 15% off your first order. What a great deal. Follow along at East Fork Pottery. That's eastfork.com, code Chang. And now, back to the show. And how do you remain so calm? Like, if I was covering food like you for all these years, I'd be so much more angry. <laughs> well, I went through that phase, and I got over it as I, as I got older. <laughs> and I still talk about my dolls, and I still talk about the wonderful things you can do with beans and bean flowers, and I put them in my books. And some people know them. I mean, people who buy my books certainly do. So they're not going nowhere. Mm. I feel they're being appreciated by some people. Not the world on uh, en masse, but uh, a lot of them, a lot of people. And that's my very limited time trying to have a better understanding of the complexities and the deep history of Indian food was like, maybe it is the, 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 the culinary superpower already. Well, it is. And it doesn't need validation from America. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't need validation. I mean, we know how wonderful it is. It's medicinally amazing because everything is geared to make the body feel better. Uh, all the spices and their food values, everybody knows at home. So that's another aspect of it, you know. Is it safe to say that almost everything may be Indian food then? <laughs> <laughs> You mean how? It, it, it will, it, without spices. Yes. Like, people take that for granted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems to me majority of the world's spices came from India. Well, they didn't. Where did they come from? It depends. Ask me which spice and I'll try and remember where it came well, from. Well, let's just start with black pepper. That grows in South India. Black yes. Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's the, that's the spice that I'm really thinking about. Yes, it's a major, major spice. Uh, I mean, nutmeg came from Indonesia, from one of the islands, Banda, which I've been to, that was totally enslaved because of the fruit. And the history of what happens to places that have spices of that kind of value they're slaughtered. People are slaughtered. And that's what happened. Yeah. And it's taken away and planted in Madagascar or somewhere else uh, where they can control the growth and not the people who are living on that island of Banda in Indonesia. So these things happen. And those cloves grew on one island in Indonesia. And they were, people were slaughtered and the cloves taken away. So this is how it works. But we had black pepper and we had many other. We have cardamom is ours. But black pepper is probably the most important spice right, of all time. and was used for trade uh, in ancient times, yeah. And then, again, we covered this, and I don't want to go too deep into this in the episode, but it really fundamentally, like, I saw it. I was like, oh, my God. When I went to the pepper farm yeah. and— I was so mad at myself because I was like, man, this is something I've tasted. I'm a cook. I, I know. But then to see it and then to understand almost like instantly, I was like, oh, this changed the world. Right. Fundamentally altered mm -hmm. the history of the world. Because I was like, man, if you were some European person in like the 14th, 15th century, you weren't cooking food with spices. Yeah. <laughs> it was probably salted pork right. and rotten vegetables it must have been a miserable existence. Mm -hmm. It was like listening to the world or 
It must have been black and white or muted. But when you tasted black pepper for the first time and the spice and the nuance and the fruitiness, it must have been an acid trip to someone. Exactly. And I was like, oh, my God. It I was never like saw gold. It, it had was the black value gold. of gold. It was yeah. black gold. And in the, I just felt so bad for India because <laughs> I was like, fuck. Sorry for cursing. I just couldn't believe that basically then black pepper is the most omnipresent thing around the world for food. Right. And without India, food across the globe is less delicious. Right. Quite true. You said it. And it was very humbling for me to be like, why did I have to come here to understand that? Yeah. No. But I have to say that I've been to Korea. Sorry, I just want to say this many, many times. And I fell in love with all kimchi plus all the other pickles, kind of from fish to vegetables, you know, all of that. They are a world unto themselves, and I just love them. Love them. You are the, the, the culinary ambassador for many, many cultures. Um, what are some of the, the chefs or journalists, I mean, you mentioned Priya, that if you're a listener and all your travels, right, besides food that you love uh, around the world, global cuisines, where in America do you feel like people are doing it right? Well, we are so lucky. I'm talking first about Indians okay. who are writing yes, now. Yes, that's what I. That's what I'm. And I think Tejal Rao is another one. She's luckily she's writing for the Times in a major kind of way, so she is expressing a lot of thoughts that a lot of us have. And she's looking out. I loved her piece on the Punjabi truck drivers. I don't know if you read I did. it. Is that's what the kind of food in India that we also love. You'd go to a, it's completely different. You go to these truck stops and, and uh, where these Sikh drivers, Punjabi drivers, they stop and they have their whatever it is. They don't, they won't eat, very often eat meat. So it'll be a paneer dish, and, uh, which is cheese. Uh, they make their own fresh cheese. So it'll be a dish with that. And then there'll be lovely breads, lovely whole wheat breads made in the tandoor. And they'll have pickled onions with it, perhaps. And that's the meal. And it's so delicious and so healthy and wholesome and hearty. And you can then get back in your truck and drive off again. I love the street food. And I didn't get to eat enough of it. But I didn't get to go. I got to go back ASAP. But um, you have a whole generation of food writers uh, Priya, Tejal, uh, Kushbu, Kushbu, exactly. Sonia Chopra, yes, Ad yes. And that's not just encouraging, that is. They're so wonderful, and they're doing all kinds of amazing research into the Sikhs who married the Mexicans. Did you read any of those pieces? Mm-hmm. Uh, and started a, a, a restaurant. Uh, where they had sort of Indian quesadillas. (laughs) (laughs) But that's how food happens. This is how food happens. When you mix people together, you get a mixed food. But this is very organically. It's happening very organically. And I find that so interesting to to watch and read about. But are there any, like, restaurants that people like or any – I mean, this is a tough question, but – I won't go into restaurants, but I will say – 
that the restaurants aren't quite keeping up with the writers. Why is that? You know, like, when people are like, oh, you just got to go to Edison. And I've been to Edison, and it's really good, but that's not going to be the food that changes the conversation, in my no. opinion. No. It's going to be about preserving some form of the nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. What what can someone that's aspiring to move the conversation forward in the the, 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 the parallel? I think a lot of things have been tried, and they just don't work in the long run. I mean, I, I'm frustrated. I, I don't know why myself. Tabla, we looked at Tabla. It opened and shut. Can, can and Floyd Floyd's restaurant Bombay uh, Club just closed again? Yes. But Tabla was one of the great. Jewels of New York City, right. especially the bread bar. Right, right. What more do people need? I know, and when I used to go, it was packed, and then it closed. So obviously, it was not making money. I don't understand money part of anything, but I don't understand that. New York City needs that, and there are restaurants that have Michelin stars and such. But I don't. I have a hard time because it's not my expertise. <laughs> In any of this stuff, but I really am looking forward to someone opening up a restaurant that's like, wow, this is it. This is the future. We haven't done it. And don't ask me why. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing that I didn't really realize when I was in India was the was like, I just thought that everyone was going to be more religious, right? That religion was much more of a thing, mm-hmm. but it's not. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. It's just a thing. I mean, that's how most countries are. I think most people are not that religious, except now we have a government Mm -hmm. that is putting a lot of emphasis on Hinduism and uh, writing a history of India as a Hindu nation. So things might change. I don't know. But I'm quite happy with letting things be. People are what they are. If they're religious, they're religious. If they're not, they're not. If they're semi-religious, I don't really mind. I think all countries are like that. Mm -hmm. You should be free to practice your religion to the degree you want to. And and this whole pro-Hindu movement, it feels like most people outside of, say, what Hassan Minaj was trying to do. He did an episode in the Patriot about Modi and the, and uh, I, without talking too much about it, I'm always shocked that it doesn't get the, the, the importance it deserves in America too, considering that India is the second largest country in the world. And the biggest democracy in the world. Well, that's what it is. This is, we have, as I said, there's no, deep connection with India, between India and America. There never has been. They, it, as, as they, with Korea, there is, because there's been a war yes. with Korea. Yes. People have lived there and deep lived scars. there for years and, and died there. But, and, but you don't have to. I believe we are connected. This is a global but, world. But they are not. Americans are not connected to India. They don't know our art. They don't know our history. And our art is stupendous. But then, you know, every country has good art, but we are a big country, so we have lots of wonderful art. But that's how it is. I was a, I was really, again, frightened about 
when we were there, just the, the 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 political climate in India and how scared people were, and people who weren't Hindu. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh my god, this is this is eerily similar to what we are having in America, except that I think Modi is way more clever than mm-hmm. Trump, and. I just, again, I came back to America. I was like, no one's talking about this. This is really problematic. Because they don't know anything and they don't care too much about India. And food has a lot to do with this conversation. Right. And a lot of this didn't make it to the show, but I wanted to ask if religion isn't that important anymore, yet it's now being propped up as such and the whole Hindu... Ahimsa. See, I wouldn't say religion is not that important. Not like that, but I mean... I wouldn't say that. Religion, when it comes to it, can become important. It is now more important in a but different way. But the way people live their daily lives, uh, the way I was raised, you were religious on religious days, right. holidays, and the rest of the day you didn't think much about it, at least in my family. But I think what's happened now that it's become politically a position that if you are Hindu, that is the correct thing, and everything will be done for those who support a Hindu India and don't support anything else. So it's become a political position. And people are now not happy with that, and I can see why. Um, back to a, a little less serious topic, but still serious. You've, what's your feelings on the Instapot? You're writing a book <laughs> or something about that? Yeah. I think it's great for cooking dal, actually talking about dal, because beans cook so well. Beans and rice cook very well in an instant pot, providing you follow my recipe. (laughs) (laughs) No, true, because, you know, other people have other recipes for beans, and to me, they don't work. Even the rice recipe of other people doesn't work. It makes a very hard rice. Indians don't eat that kind of al dente rice. We leave that to the Italians. So we can't eat rice with a grain uncooked. What is your in the thought? Middle. I'm gonna get. I mean, people think I always make fun of Italian food. That's not true. But I dislike al dente rice. I don't like risotto. I dislike it myself. Why? It's a un. It's uncooked rice. It's uncooked rice. That is what it is to me, and I won't have it for Indian food. You do what you want with your risotto, but Indian food. You don't want it al dente. You want it cooked through, just cooked through. And cooked through and soft. And they say for basmati rice, rice should be like brothers, close together but not stuck to each other. Hmm. So this is how we like to cook our basmati rice. And the instant pot can do it beautifully, provided you follow my recipe. Is the book out already? Yeah, yeah. And what's the title of the book? Uh, I don't remember the full title, but it's Mother Joffrey's Instant Pot, Instant, Instant Something Recipe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, what did people, I mean, did you just, people use pressure cookers before? In India, they've used pressure cookers for the last 40, 50 years. So for us, it's a natural move. I want to ask you, because when people, I've come back and I was like, hey, what do you, where should I go? Where should I stay? Traveling to India is like pretty full on experience too, right? It's it's not like any country I've ever been to. It is 
it's a, uh, I would say a, an assault on the senses because mm-hmm. there's so much noise at times. There's so much. They're just, I've never, I, I don't even know how to describe it. How do you tell people to navigate and the best way to travel India? Okay. Because it's becoming more and more of a destination for people. Right. So it, first thing is be prepared from anything from the first century to the 21st century. <laughs> and India is like an onion. You can keep peeling the layers and you'll, when you get to the inside, you'll see all every century is represented. So don't be afraid of poverty because as somebody said, they said, oh, we saw all these poor people sleeping on the streets. So this person said, at least they were sleeping. How many people in America can't sleep and have to take a pill to sleep? So, you know, it's a, you can fight back all kinds of arguments, but it is a poverty. There is poverty and it's visible poverty. So if you can't deal with that, don't go. Then once you go, there's everything from five-star top uh, hotels to hostels of various sort where you can stay very cheaply. I always say if you can afford it, I always like lovely clean sheets and nice showers. So I would like to stay in the best hotels, but you do what you can afford. And certainly all the young people I know don't travel like that. So they go as they want to. But B, don't drink the water. Drink bottled water, and other than that, eat all cooked food. What's the one um, street food? Is it the puri puri? I was told don't mani eat puri. mani puri. Don't eat that on the street. Yeah, because we used to eat. My father always never let us eat all that stuff because he said you'll get sick, and yet we would sneak out and eat. <laughs> <laughs> so. If it's cooked, usually you can. So my father said, only cook food. So we would get these kebabs, these on a skewer, seek kebabs. And then they would put raw onions on top. And my father didn't say anything about the raw onions, which obviously had been washed in water. That was equally dirty as everything else. That's okay. He didn't, as the kebab was cooked. So that was all right. So you have to be careful. You have to be careful. I love street food in all cultures. I love snack food in all cultures. That's the one thing I was completely unprepared for, was the bounty of snacks. And street food. It's almost like Indian food is snack food. Well, <laughs> there is a heck of a lot, lot. of this. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah, you could, uh, it's, uh, we, we eat it at tea time or in the morning or for lunch. We eat it all the time. And it's been there forever. So delicious. So delicious. But yet we have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But the street snacks, just walking through like Mumbai, I, I just. It's always dangerous to eat them because they have green coriander, for example. But I, cilantro. I, 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 I eat everything. I had to. And most of the time you survive. And I was, again, just shocked at the snacking nature in Indian culture. And that's the one thing that I thought was common was people just eating on the go, like pretty quickly. They stopped. They're on the phone. They order whatever they want pretty quickly. Eat. Like, not a lot. Just one bite and they're out. You go to Singapore. You go to all these places. They have wonderful. They used to be on the street. But but they're bigger meals. Yeah. I've never seen anything where people quickly getting one bite. It'd be like getting um, 
I'll have a quarter of a hot dog. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. just like eat that and you walk. I thought oh. it was a beautiful thing. Oh, it's, it's, uh, our snacks are delicious. You can get them at uh, certain places where they're completely coming. The, the sons of this particular family what came to America to study, and they now have everything all clean and wrapped, and it's the same food. Uh, it's not as tasty to me, but it's still there, and you can get most of it. And uh, you can get it all clean if you want to. Would you think that the Indian food as a whole has done more with the potato than the French have done? With Absolutely. The yes. When w- one of the Indians said in the, I think, 18th century and 19th century, the best thing the white man gave us was the potato. And what have we done with it? Everything. Everything. I can give you literally hundreds of thousands of recipes for potatoes. I, that's that's the thing. It's like cooking school, they teach you like, oh, the French, they've done everything. Like literally that was taught to me. They're the pinnacle expression of potatoes. Like Parmentier, yeah. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm amazed at the different ways to eat potato in all varieties. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I know. So one of my favorite dishes, also a dying wish would be to eat that dish, is potatoes cooked with uh, cumin and asafoetida and tomatoes and turmeric. It's very simple. Asafoetida is a a spice. a resin Resin. that comes from a tree in Afghanistan and Kashmir, two places. And it actually uh, cures indigestion. So beans are not always easy to digest. So... Very often you'll find a little bit of asafoetida touch in the bean dish, uh, in the tarka that you put in right, at the right, end, right. a little bit of asafoetida. It has its medicinal purpose. The whole conversation about spice blends and sambar spices, that's that's a beautiful thing. That is family heirloom stuff that, I that's again, it. I don't even understand because I've never had anything like that in my life. Right. But... See, there's no curry powder. For Indians don't use curry powder. However, they are family spice blends uh, for certain dishes only, though not for everything, for certain dishes. Does it still get you ang- Does it anger you when people say, I want curry or let's get curry? I hit the roof. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain to the audience as to why? Because you see, curry, what is curry powder? It's a standardized mix of spices. So if you cooked with curry powder, every dish you made would taste the same. Whereas we can make a dish and do with one spice, two spices, three spices, four, five, six, and it can go on to 30. Some are whole, some are ground. It's how we use them because whether they're whole or ground spices, some of them like mustard seeds are like Jekyll and Hyde. If you just use them whole, they are nutty if you pop them. But if you grind them the way they are, they're pungent. So these are two different tastes you can get from the same spice, same with cumin seeds, same with uh, cinnamon. If you drop cinnamon, a stick of cinnamon in hot oil, and then put a piece of meat and brown it, the, the taste of the cinnamon will go in like an injection into the piece of meat. Mm. And if you brown it with that flavor, it goes right in. And then you make your stew or whatever you're doing with your meat. Um, back to the snack food thing <laughs> real quick. Okay. I want to make, I want to, do you think, 
some me, is it wrong for me to want to put Vodapov on the menu and make it popular? Because I feel like I shouldn't be the person. What is the first word you said? The the Vodapov. Vodapov. That's the the Mumbai was the potato with a potato sandwich. Ah, ah, street ah. food sandwich. Yes, and I I would eat everywhere. Because it was all different, different yes. ways of doing it. Right, right. And I just thought it was the most brilliant thing. Absolutely. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Vodapav? Vodapav, it could be, yes. So if I, I don't want to be the person to sell, I want to put it on the menu to celebrate it because I think it's like. I put it on the menu and say I'm celebrating it and do it. I'll come and eat it. <laughs> <laughs> and one one more thing before I get you out of here is. I get sensitive when, like, I read. I was w- w- looking at a recipe on one of the food websites, and it was like, "Oh, this is uh, gochujang noodles with this, this, and this." And I was like, "They just mixed four different countries in Asia into one dish, and they said it was Korean." And I'm like, <laughs> "I get mad, and I don't express it." Yeah. When you see Indian food and culture. And this is such a buzzword 2019 thing, appropriated. But I think Indian food and culture has been appropriated more than any other culture, maybe. Yeah, yeah. it How, has. And I see it all the time. What are you supposed to feel? And in some ways, it popularizes it because this Ayurvedic business element where you have turmeric everywhere. Uh, and it sickens me. Chai, tea, is tea the which... <laughs> Is the pits. It tastes like nothing on earth. But all of these things that are making someone else a ton of money, but no one that's actually right, Indian. Right, right. Because they get the rights to everything, like neem leaves are supposed to be good for everything. They've appropriated that in this country. So they tried to take basmati rice also, but then somebody fought for it, and I think we won. I'm not sure if we did. So I think, but there's a question in my mind about cultural appropriateness. Mm. Because I remember giving my granddaughter some earrings. And uh, they were from Africa. And they were African figures. And she said, it's not culturally appropriate for me to be wearing them. I heard this through her mother indirectly. And I thought, you know, so what is culturally appropriate? It's a question. I think we have to talk about it. We have to hash it out. I don't know what the answer is. But are people entitled? Can they wear? Can they eat? Yes, they can. I think they can. Can they mix and match and take bits of it and put it in their food? I guess they can because we've all done that. I mean, after all, everyone's cuisine, if you Mm. examine it, bits of it came from somewhere else. But isn't it the intent? There's a right intent and there's wrong intent. What's the wrong intent? That it's for personal gain and only personal gain. Well, we live in a society today in this country where everything is for personal gain. Uh, But I do believe that there's a right way. If someone wants to... What do they do? Let's say you want to take a bit of Indian food and put it in your food. What... would you think would be the honorable way to do it? I don't think there is an honorable way. I think you can use it as a form of education and acceptance and to tell the history. You can do that with your staff. You can do that with, you know, for instance, in 
in Sydney, Australia, we have a restaurant, Seobo, and Paul Carmichael is our Barbados citizen. And he's he's black in a country that has got almost no dark-skinned people with the exception of the native Aboriginal right. people. And, and that menu now is serving food from the Caribbean. And I think it's three mission star level. It's been rated one or two restaurant in all of mm. Australia. And <clears throat> we're serving food that is teaching people about a part of the world that most people in Australia have no idea. And I have no doubt that most of the cooks there that are with us or work for somewhere else are going to leave better because of it. They're learning about food in a way that's more meaningful with intention than mm. I'm just coming to work here to learn all these different techniques and to make myself a better cook. So when you talk, say it's a Caribbean food, it's like conch salad. What, what do you consider? I think that Caribbean food is actually, the funny thing is, Paul's not making it with, he's making all with Australian ingredients, which are yeah, tropical right. enough. But Caribbean food is literally like, some of it's Indian food, some of it's oh, you mean, African I see, food. But, I see. but what it is, is it's, I, I use this example because it's, he's, and kindly the general manager there are trying to, it's not just putting something that's delicious because the food is delicious. Mm -hmm. It really is. And it's exquisite. But I find it to be incredibly hopeful because it's teaching people something without beating it over their head. Mm -hmm. And I think that if Paul wasn't from the Caribbean, and that's what I think about, if Paul right. was someone that was from Sydney, Australia, but went <clears throat> a year abroad or whatever and fell in love with that food and wanted to do it and – in this age of 2019, I could easily see people being like, you can't make that food. But what if he genuinely yeah. or she genuinely loves it and it's their calling and all they want to do is highlight this food or this region of the world? Why should we tell them they can't? It's a tricky point. Now, I tell you uh, another story. I went to one of the Wonderful islands in 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 uh, next to uh, Sri Lanka, and they are all atolls. They are beautiful. They're gorgeous. The uh, and one of the dishes that I went to one, which is basically one little island, and you all live on little huts in the water. Beautiful, expensive, beautiful. So the cook was Australian. But she had traveled all through South India and picked up some wonderful ideas from South India that she put together into, the, like she made a cucumber soup, which was absolutely out of this world. But she used ideas of South India, like she put the thing called curd rice in the center, which is a little bit of spicy yogurt and, and rice uh, with a lot of mustard seeds. She just put that in the center and she had this lovely broth, which had Spices, but they were strained away, and it was basically cucumber. So in that hot weather, uh, this is the Maldive Islands, I'm talking about one of them. And she was totally Australian, but she was doing her own thing with ideas from India. I think that's fine. I think that's absolutely fine. And she's doing actually something creative that she has come up with, but the little bits and pieces that she's added are all from South India. I, I I agree. I think that's this is a conversation that's tricky 
And yeah. I wanted to hear what you thought about it because you have more wisdom about this than I think anyone. So thank you. But I think it's a case-by-case basis. It is. It is. Are it you- depends on how it's done and uh, what is being passed off as uh, a whole lot of things. But I thought she did it perfectly. Do you feel that for any cuisine, but probably Indian cuisine as well as as complex as it is, that the only way for it to get to sort of like the third or the next generation of how it's done is that. Like you you almost can't. I'm afraid that's the only way. I would ideally say, okay, this is the real food. Eat this. See what it's like. And it's so varied and if you, I can feed you for a year and never give you the same thing again. <laughs> then go on to see what can happen with it and how it can change. That would be my ideal. But it's not going to happen the way I want it to happen. So I say go ahead to step two, which is what the younger generation is doing, and that's fine too. Well, I will not ask you any more bad questions. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I seriously like you are a very important person uh, to how I think about food and what you've done. And thank you so much. Well, whether thank you, you for saying that. And I uh, think you're a very important person <laughs> for what you've done. Is there anything else that uh, that you have going on that you want people to know about? Uh, I have so much going on, uh, and so much that's not fixed or settled. Okay. So I'll just hold on to it till it's fixed and settled. That's that's a, a lot of wisdom. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening to the podcast with Madhur Joffrey. She's a remarkable person, and uh, she's lived an extraordinary life. So uh, hopefully you have followed her career. And if you haven't, go buy her cookbooks and go study up. She has, again, earned every one of her opinions. Um, wanted to get to a Ask Dave at MajordomoMedia.com question. You can continue to email them at AskDave at MajordomoMedia.com or send us a five-star review on our iTunes podcast page and give us five stars, send us a question, and we'll answer it on air. This week, we wanted to get to a question by Brian Liverman. I just finished your podcast with Sean Brock, and I was struck by Sean's comment about not wanting to have his son go into the restaurant business. I found this fascinating because it reflects the feelings of many immigrant families that I have spoken with and that I have seen in media, including several of your own podcasts and productions. It has always struck me as conflicting because we hold hard work in such high regard, but we'll go to great lengths to make sure our children do not need to work as hard as we do ourselves. I'm interested to know if you, as a new father, has similar feelings. Brian, of course I do. And uh, since it is Thanksgiving, I am incredibly thankful for my father and all of my um, relatives that have uh, immigrated to America and come to this country and and carved out a new beginning for my family and relatives. Um, You know, it's the only immigrant story that I can tell. And... I don't have any Chang relative that's a doctor or scientist or an academic, and there are a lot of them, but I feel that most of the people I know, they came and they, from a Korean perspective, they own laundromats or they worked at a 7-Eleven or a bodega or something like that. And 
they worked so hard so their kids would never have to do what they did. And my father worked in the restaurant business for almost 30 years, working as a dishwasher and then eventually getting out and weirdly got into the golf business of all things. But I don't have a single memory of my dad really uh, outside of like him on the golf course because I never saw him at all, zero, outside of maybe occasional like moments, but I don't remember day-to-day moments, uh, really spending time mostly with my grandparents simply because he was always working and cooking is a hard job. It obviously is a labor of love. And when I told my dad, I was getting into cooking, he did everything in his power to make sure that I wasn't going to do it. And I didn't understand it, but I do now. It's an incredibly hard job. Is it the best job in the world? Yes. More often than not, it can also be one of the dumbest jobs in the world. And I wrestle with that all the time. It's 51% I love it versus 49% I hate it. And I don't know if I would want my son to get into cooking. The choice is up to him. I'm not going to prevent him from doing anything, but I want to lay it out there pretty clearly that it's a job I love. It's a job I, I try to continue to educate, but I want him to go in with full eyes should he choose to do so. Because... um it's not glamorous. I don't think any business is, but particularly the culinary business isn't glamorous. And any business that's hard physical labor, it's why our parents, particularly, again, when I say our parents, I'm talking about immigrant culture. I'm not speaking for all immigrants. I'm really speaking for my parents. It broke my dad's heart when I would come home with burns all over my arms and and uh, I would not see anyone for a long time because I was just working kitchens and she kept on saying, when, when is this going to end? When are you going to stop doing this and do something different, do something serious? And it really made me angry when he said that. And I think it really hurt our relationship because I just thought it was being disrespectful to what I wanted to perceive as a career and something I loved. And now as a father, I can see things differently that I didn't at the time when my dad was really trying not to get me to cook because I think he saw how hard it was. And I understand that we want people to work hard and particularly the culture that I grew up in. But you have this idea that your kids or your child, at least my son, will have different opportunities. And uh, it's funny how things are so cyclical. And I would not surprise me at all if Hugo decided to walk in the culinary world. But I want to make sure that he knows all the things that I didn't know. And that's the best I can do. And I think it's conflicted. I don't know if I have been very articulate in this because it's very confusing for me as well, why I would love something and hate it simultaneously. But I will tell you that this business of cooking is fucking hard, man. (laughs) It is hard. I'm not even at home right now. I'm in Las Vegas because we're opening up a new restaurant. And if I wasn't opening a new restaurant, I'd be working in a restaurant. And for years upon years, I never made it home for Thanksgiving. I probably made it home for Thanksgiving four times in like 20 years. And it's often a holiday that I missed, Christmas as well. And you hear these things before you start to cook. And I think that it's about options. And when my father came to this country, he had no options. And that's why he worked in the restaurant business, which I think it confounded and completely confused him as to why I would want to do it. And I think he understands now, but I totally understand when I talk to Sean Brock or I talk to other chefs, not every chef feels the same way. Many chefs are like, I'd love it if my my offspring, my child would get into the profession and follow them. 
But it seems to me more often than not, more more people that are chefs in this industry are not always excited to have their kid in this. But it's not everyone. A lot of people are excited. But for me personally, I think there's other ways to express yourself and there's other ways to be creative. But if he chooses to be in the culinary world, uh, I feel like I will have something to help him. I'll have a lot of good advice for young Hugo. But uh, it's interesting, right? And um, I think about it a lot, more than ever, obviously having a child about the choices you make and how you hope that your children are going to make a better choice than you. And um, I have a lot of thoughts to talk about, but I'm not sure I'm articulating them very clearly. Obviously, I I have conflicted feelings about this. But um, that being said, I will shut up and have you guys hopefully enjoy a wonderful Thanksgiving with your friends and your family. Take it easy, everyone.